I'm Chip Granditz, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, September 18th, 2018. Coming up, CU Boulder researchers have discovered a key mechanism by which skin begins to develop in embryos, shedding light on the genetic roots of birth defects like cleft palate and paving the way for development of more functional skin grafts for burn victims. We bring you an interview with lead researcher, Associate Professor Ray Yi, who explains some of the secrets he has been uncovering about how skin begins. And then, how do you reconcile a flair for competition and performance with a penchant for science and learning? We'll hear from Dr. Daniel Rudnicki, whose first career was as a competitive and professional figure skater, and then, after getting an undergraduate degree in biochemistry and a Ph.D. in organic chemistry from CU, he then founded a biotech company. But still needing an outlet for his urge to perform, he has created the persona of Dr. Dan to bring enthralling and flashy science presentations to local schools. But first, we begin with uh, some information about a local science event happening this evening. Tonight at Cafe Scientifique in Denver, the topic is brains. Love the one you're with. Given by Professor Kim Gorgans of the University of Denver Graduate School of Psychology. Ever worry about that time you fell snowboarding or the seasons you paid contact sports as a kid? If you're following the headlines about concussions in football and the related risk for dementia or the relationship between criminal behavior or domestic violence and traumatic brain injury, you might be more than a little alarmed. In the cafe, you'll hear from Dr. Kim Gorgans from the University of Denver Graduate School of Professional Psychology. She will contrast the hype and hysteria with the actual state of the science in brain health and injury. Dr. Gorgans' promises to review brain-boosting interventions that are backed by strong scientific support and also highlight what she calls the snake oil, all of which is expensive and some of which may be harmful. She bills the presentation as an owner's manual for the human brain. Cafe Scientifique happens tonight at the Blake Street Tavern in Denver. Everyone is welcome. The presentation starts at 6.30. Get there by 6 to get something to eat. It ends by 8. Blake Street Tavern is at 2301 Blake Street in Denver by Coors Field. Find parking in a lot adjacent or at meters on the street. Thousands of people undergo, undergo skin grafts each year to repair burns, birth defects, or wounds. Medical advancements, including the advent of stem cell therapy, which uses the patient's own skin to grow new skin, have improved skin transplants. Yet, the transplanted skin still lacks some important qualities present in the skin normal healthy people are born with. There are still some secrets to be learned about how skin begins. 
Professor Ray Yi headed a team of researchers at CU uh, and believes his team has started to uncover some of those secrets. They have just published their results in the journal Cell Development on September 13th. In the development of animal organisms, those earliest skin cells, that is, the ones that have the first differentiated from other types of cells, somehow manage to unfold valuable genetic information from their embryonic progenitors. But later on, that ability is lost. How and why? As it happens, there is much to be learned from mice. So we study skin development, I would say, mostly in the mouse development. We use mouse as a model system to study them. Skin actually is one of the later developed tissues, not in mouse or both in mouse and humans. They form essentially after gastrulation when the neuron cells and the skin cells both constitute so-called ectodermal cells. That's when they start to different that, you know, there are skin cells as a neuron okay, cells. And obviously, you can imagine for any animals, their skin has to be fully functional, at least as a protective layer before animals born. As, you know, after they were born, they will have to withstand all those environment insults come at them on this earth. There already are uh, skin graft treatments out there. Uh, tell me about the state of those treatments today and how your research carries the effectiveness of such treatments forward, or at least that is the hope. Yeah, so skin grafts um, as a treatment for burn patients, I would say, have been pioneered by uh, Dr. Howard Green at the Harvard University back in the 70s. What he was doing was taking out uh, skin cells, cultures in a petri dish, and then expand it to su sufficient cell numbers and then promote their differentiation. So it can form really a sheet of cells, then they can cover your body with this sheet of skin, um, so-called regenerate your skin. But the difference will be those regenerative skin generally do not have hair follicles or sweat glands or formation of neural uh, endings, as you can imagine, that can allow our normal skin to feel the sense of touch. So that's the current state, I would say, for skin grafts. Um, therapies or experiments. What we're trying to, want to do is trying to understand how embryonic program executes the genomic information and trying to leverage those embryonic informations and trying to say, can we take advantage of some of the information to help adult patients to regenerate the skin, not only have epidermis, but also have sweat gland, hair follicles, and properly attached nerve ending and so on. And so sometimes when people hear the term embryonic cell technology, they think about the political controversies right. used from a limited number of uh, embryonic stem cell lines that are available. But the kind of research that you're talking about uh, actually uh, takes, takes this treatment away from that controversy. Explain that. So when we talk about embryonic stem cells, that actually deal with very specialized, we call it pluripotent stem cells that only reside in blastist stage. That's a very, very early stage of development. Uh, when we talk about embryonic skin progenitors, we're talking about much late uh, cell types that already differentiated. They already know they're going to become skin. So it's far away removed from embryonic stem cells. Plus, what we're really trying to understand is how the genetic information is unfolded from those embryonic progenitors and compare them to the adult cells and to see what's the difference. Is there anything we can learn from the embryonic progenitor cells and help adult cells to repair the wound? Although I'm not a, a skin cellular scientist, I know just from, from vacuuming my own couch that as, as adult humans, we slough off dead skin, and so we must be 
regrowing some skin all of the time, uh, how is it then that we need um, some special features? What is different about the embryonic development that my continued ability to develop skin, let's say I gain some weight, I certainly mm-hmm. gain some more yeah. skin. Yeah. What, what is different about the embryonic development that's so important? So what you're talking about in adults, um, our skin obviously always shed off the old skin and the new hair follicle or new skin will be generated by they call the homeostatic maintenance. They're trying to maintain the structure of our skin is not wound repair. Um, but if you imagine, embryonic skin would be very different because in, right now, for you know, we have our hair follicles, sweat gland, epidermis. They already know what type of cells they are. They just need to maintain their status, right? In embryonic development, there is no epidermis, there is no hair follicles, and no sweat gland. Somehow the genome knows how to execute their genomic information, execute the genomic program, to so-called generate those uh, structures de novo. That means they generate from scratch. So the idea would be the embryonic cells must know something different than an adult cell, because when you know, as an adult, if we hurt our hair follicles or hurt our sweat gland, for example, in a burn, large-scale wounding, they very rarely can regenerate. That means adult cells do not have the capability of embryonic cells to generate those structures. That's what we're trying to learn from the embryonic progenitor cells. If we anthropomorphize and try to think of proteins or gene sequences as people, then a very important type of protein, known as a transcription factor, might be thought of as a scholar on how to make all the different kinds of cells in an organism. Continuing with this metaphor, one particular transcription factor, known as P63, is a scholar who has an amazing expertise in the ancient texts on how to make all of the components of fully functioning skin from scratch. But using the term ancient lost art, I speak in metaphors. Let us return to Professor Ray Yi, who speaks more scientifically of embryonic progenitors and how P63 enables critical signaling pathways. So transcription factor, actually, I would say probably one of the most important uh, proteins that in our genome. Their job is to bind specific region of the genome. And in most of the time, it's activate gene expression. That means when they bind to that particular piece of genome, they can make sure this gene gets expressed. Sometimes make sure the gene gets repressed. But either way, I would call them a reader of our genomic information because in our body, there are trillions of cells. All of them have identical genome. But why different cells have different phenotypes. Brain cells are different than skin cells, for sure. That's because they express different genes, yet they read the same information from the same genome. So they need different transcription factors to read different type of information from the cell to make the brain, to make the skin. So that's what transcription factor does. In our genome, there are about, I would say, 2,600 transcription factors, which is about probably 10%, 8% of our genome in terms of the number of genes. Uh, in case of this P63, it's a very important transcription factor for the skin. They expressed, that means they normally uh, have its presence mostly in the skin cells. We know it's important because in many years ago, 1999 actually, there are two studies. They knock out the P63 gene, that means they remove P63 from the genome, in the mouse genome. And what happened for those mouse, they have no skin formation and they have no limb formation, and those animals die after birth. That means this transcription factor is very important. 
Another aspect to show the importance of those transcription factors is there are some human patients, as you mentioned. They have the cleft palates. They maybe have malformation of hair follicles. They have malformation of sweat gland or malformation of mammary gland. They actually all harbor P63 mutations in different regions. So that means this mutation in this gene also can cause human uh, skin disease. That's, again, for another angle indicating this transcription factor is important. And I think as we were talking about before the interview, uh, there's obvious some moral issues about trying to induce these mutations in humans, and so that's why you're studying mice. So you're going to try to uh, use uh, mice fetuses to deliberately introduce some of these mutations? Right. So, you know, mouse genetics has been a really important field in biomedical research for, I would say, last 30 or 40 years really benefited from that, our ability to very precisely engineer the genome. That means we can change the mouse genome as we can, as we see appropriate. For example, in this particular case, we would create mutations in mouse P63 genome to mimic exactly the same mutation observed in human patients. Uh, we don't know the answer yet, but the hope will be if we create the same mutation as in human, we would see the same phenotype that's observing human patients, not in mouse. The difference will be when human patients show up at the you know, uh, hospital or doctor's office, they already have this development, go through the entire development. So we don't really know what happened at early time. Do we have any way to intervene or potentially even help them before they start to show the symptoms? So that's why we use mouse, because we can study entire skin development. If we can create the same mutation, we observe the same defects, then we can look at how early this mutation start to work improperly and to induce a skin uh, disease. And we can further try to understand what's the so-called underlying mechanisms. And hopefully that can give us some ability to interfere with human or trying to help human patients at a very early time. And so you foresee one of the growths, one of the outcomes of your treatment is not simply treating adults, but perhaps... Uh, the identification of uh, the genome sequence of fetuses and then doing treatment in utero to actually prevent the expression of certain uh, diseases and conditions? That's right. I, I would say a lot of so-called congenital disease in humans, that means they acquire the mutation during their embryonic development or they have the mutation in, in their embryonic development. It would be very difficult to correct them after they were born or become adults. The most likely way to treat those conditions would be treat them as early as they can. Um, if, say, we, we find that there are certain molecules missing, then we can put it back at the earliest time. Maybe we can change the course of that development, uh, trying to save the patients at the earliest time. So that's certainly very interesting, but brings up very uh, many biomedical ethics considerations. Mm -hmm. That could be, but, you know, uh, I'm a basic science researcher, so we're trying to understand the mechanism. I would say if we do find some mechanism and potentially develop some uh, therapy against that, and then we obviously need the people from many different fields, bioengineering, uh, ethical research, as well as obvious doctors to get involved, trying to see what's the best we can bring to the patient. And although we've spoken mostly about uh, you know very serious uh, skin diseases, uh, skin cancers, congenital effects, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that just don't like the fact that their skin is getting old or mm -hmm, their hair yeah. follicles on the top of their head don't work the way they used to. Right. Do you think some of this research about uh, getting skin to act young again will uh, 
help just with uh, Americans and their vanity issues <laughs> about uh, always looking young? Yeah, that's actually a very interesting question. Um, you know, before I didn't realize, for example, for the patient that goes through chemotherapy, their actually biggest challenge is their hair loss, which in terms of biological, it probably doesn't really affect that much. But from a uh, self-esteem point of view or confidence point of view, they feel very traumatic if they lose hair. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of uh, patients that do lose hair once we're aging or we form wrinkles and so on. I would say that's a holy grail for the aging research. The, uh, the hope is can we revert the aging processing? Can we go all the way back to embryonic states or to coax our cells, become more embryo-like cells without the um, the risk of becoming tumorigenic, for example. But can we reverse the course of the cells so we can make them younger? You, you, mm-hmm. you can imagine if every single cell become younger, probably the whole structure, whole tissue will become younger too. But you know, obviously that's still ongoing processing. We're trying to just understand what's the difference between embryos and adult cells. Maybe we can even look at the older uh, adult cells to see how different they are compared to the, those embryo progenitors. And so, uh, Professor Ray Yi, your uh, research was just published last week in the journal uh, Developmental Cell. Uh, Now that that has been published, uh, what's in the near future for you? Do you continue on in this line of research, or do you turn your attention somewhere else? So we think P63 is a very important transcript factor. Uh, Right now, our study is really trying to deal with the normal form of this transcription factor, what it does in, in early time. As I alluded to earlier, the mutation of this particular gene has been found in many different human patients. So we do want to create uh, mouse models that have the identical mutations of on this gene and to uh, trying to see if those mouse develop conditions that's similar to human patients. And if we can accomplish that, then obviously we want to study the so-called underlying mechanism to see which specific pathway goes awry um, maybe there are the underlying reasons for uh, human patients. That's one aspect. Second aspect, we, this study is also deal with mouse development. We don't really know how similar or different between mouse development and human skin development. So another as- aspect will be trying to look for in human development during the processing, how this gene might work. Um, so that, I would say, immediate goal for this particular project. Obviously, we have multiple projects uh, going on in the lab. We study hair follicle development, um, regeneration in adult tissues, but they are different than this line of research. Ray Yi is Associate Professor of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology. The results of his research, which included postdoctoral associate Zhi Ying Fan, were published on September 13th in the journal Developmental Cell. From Disney on Ice to CU chemistry departments to the field of biomedical entrepreneurship to your child's classroom. That is the strange arc of Dr. Dan. Uh, with us in the studio, we have Dr. Daniel Rudnicki, or as your child might meet him, simply as Dr. Dan. Dan, welcome. Hi, Chip. Great. Thanks for having me today. Tell me a little bit, as we mentioned in the intro, uh, your original career had very much to do with uh, performance and competition, 
And uh, then you had a slight change of career that involved uh, some education at CU and forming some some science companies. So tell us a little bit about uh, what led up to the persona of Dr. Dan that uh, your child might encounter. You know, thanks, Chip. That is really, it really has been a wonderful and kind of bizarre life in actuality. Um, I was a competitive figure skater as a child, and I, I loved it. And there was an opportunity in my 20s to tour with a professional company, Disney on Ice. And I took that opportunity. I ended up going to like 339 cities and 59 countries. It was like being a rock star. You know, you're just traveling around um, and entertaining. When I retired from that, I, I knew I had interest in the biomedical field, so I wanted to finish my education. So I finished my undergraduate degree at CU Boulder and then had the opportunity to go to graduate school. So I took that and fell in love with what I was doing, had an amazing opportunity to take some of the technologies that we discovered and try and turn it into a business. So I went from professional athlete to student to business entrepreneur, as you said. It was really fantastic, and I've loved every second of it. And so, you know, you've sort of mentioned to me that you have a, a penchant for performance. Uh, some ways uh, that people uh, get that uh, creative outlet uh, after they earned a PhD is to turn around and become a professor. Was that something you considered? That really was on my radar. You know, I thought the, you know, academia was in my future. Um, and that's why when I kind of went the business route, um, you know, the lab can be lonely and leadership can also be lonely. So being able to be in front of people, it kind of gave me an opportunity to give back and, and rediscover my roots. Okay, well then let's get into uh, who exactly is this persona, Dr. Dan? How was he created? And and if your child is going to meet Dr. Dan and see a presentation, what can he expect or she expect? Right, Dr. Dan was, was really a lucky accident. So we founded um, Streetlight Toys, um, which has a line of products called uh, Glow H2O products. Um, and they're basically scientifically oriented products that uh, serve as a platform for children to jump in to do further learning. So Dr. Dan was born of just going into the classroom and doing some demonstrations and showing them the technology that we thought we could put into scientific kits and consumer toys and to see what their reaction was. And their reaction was, of course, overwhelmingly positive. And of course, we hear a lot today uh, in uh, discussions in the media about education, about the concept of uh, STEM, or sometimes uh, we add the mm -hmm. A, I yeah. believe it's for arts, and it's called Absolutely. STEAM. Absolutely. Uh, tell me what uh, your opinion, uh, I mean, wh how do you feel that you enhance the curriculum? Because, of course, in, in Boulder Valley School Districts, there already is an existing science curriculum. How do you uh, try to get your presentation to fit in and enhance the existing curriculum and address concerns about STEM or STEAM. Yeah, absolutely. I love putting the A in there. I, and that's really a big part of Dr. Dan is, is the confluence. When all things come together, when technology art, mathematics, engineering, everything comes together. That's really where the beauty lies. And so one thing that I really uh, try to do is, you know, you talk about chemistry and it seems abstract. It's hard to imagine these imaginary microscopic things. So the big thing for me is showing how all of these principles, the engineering, the chemistry, you know, even the polymers that make plastic, how all that comes together to make something as fantastic as a Tesla, for example. And then, you know, I have to say that in some ways, uh, the stereotype or the image of a chemist that used to appear in my mind, uh, you know, was somewhat, uh, it was in a Victorian lab, you know, with yes. Bunsen burners and Erlenmeyer flasks. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, and perhaps, uh, you know, chemists didn't get a, a great media PR with uh, 
Walter White and Jesse Pinkman. Yes. Um, so, you <laughs> know, sure. yeah, how, how do you try to tell uh, children today what the life of a chemist would be like if that's something they want to pursue? Well, you know, I should start a show called Breaking Good. You know, it's really exciting. The, 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 there's a myriad of problems that need to be solved with chemistry. You know, we have this uh, petrochemical plastics pollution. We have carbon sequestration. At the core of everything, the, everything's a chemical. Chemical is sometimes used as a bad word. For me, everything is a chemical. We are just big bags of chemistry walking around. So um, there's so many problems to be solved. And I, I'm, the kids can really just go crazy with chemistry in any way. And <laughs> you think you may have alarmed some some teachers that were yeah, thinking maybe. about having you in? <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Right. We do we do have some explosions. There's definitely fire, fire and bioluminescence. We love bioluminescence, which is where our company is. That's kind of the core foundation of our scientific kits and toys, um, which is of course the natural production of light um, that organisms like a firefly um, or a deep sea organism use. And then so how do you uh, reach out and make contact with educators who might want to bring you into their classroom? You know, we've been super fortunate that they've actually come to us. So any listeners out there that would like to get in contact or if you would like to see what Dr. Dan's antics are, please check out our Instagram is the best place to see us. It's uh, glow, G-L-O-W underscore H2O um, for glowing water, the bioluminescent water that we produce. So uh, direct message us or check us out that way. Thank you very much. That is Dr. Daniel Rudnicki or just... Dr. Dan. Booyah. (laughs) And that's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Chip Granditz. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Mo Colors. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Chip Granditz.